Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, this is Colin, and this is our penultimate episode of Astronauti Week. Now, if you know anything about our show, you may be aware of the fact that astronauts have been banned from our show for six years. In, in the time prior to those six years, astronauts were on the show, and frankly, they were nothing but trouble. Nothing but a massive headache for me. So what we're going to do today is let you hear a little bit of some of those prior shows, the shows that led up to the banning of astronauts for being such a big pain in the tuckus. And then we'll meet a new astronaut. He's an astronaut you may already know. He's Chris Hadfield, the famous Canadian astronaut. Yes, there is such a thing as a famous Canadian astronaut. That's all coming up right after the news. Hi, this is Colin. So if there were anyone, I don't know, writing a history of the Colin McEnroe show, which there definitely is not, one of the things that that historian would have to deal with is the banning of astronauts from the Colin McEnroe show, which took place six years ago. And it took place six years ago because we had two very bad experiences with astronauts. I had two bad experiences with astronauts, although in the case of Buzz Aldrin, the producer of that episode, Josh Nalea, had we almost had to get oxygen for, for Josh. And I don't think I'm in a, a, an unreasonable person. I really don't. <laughs> but I'd had it. I'd had it after all that. And so I said, no more astronauts. We are going to lift the ban today. First of all, we're going to show you what led up to the ban. Then we're going to lift the ban. We're going to talk to Chris Hadfield, the famous Canadian astronaut. And then, I don't know, I might ban astronauts again. I'm not really quite sure yet. But first... Come back in time with me to May 24th, 2016. We were very excited to get Buzz Aldrin on the show. He was 86 years old at the time. He was on with two other guests. The producer, as I mentioned, was Josh Nalea. He had very, very high hopes for this show. Those hopes, I think it's fair to say, were dashed to the lunar surface by what actually transpired. If we'd been monitoring his blood pressure at the time, it would have been alarming. So we've edited a show-length conversation down to about 10 or 11 minutes, but I think you'll get the gist of things. Brigadier General Buzz Aldrin is a retired astronaut, engineer, and fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. He was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 11, and he was one of the first two humans to walk on the moon. His new book in 2016 was... No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon, which went on to be an international bestseller. And I asked him what he and Neil Armstrong did while they were on the moon. We followed a uh, prescribed uh, two-hour series of activities as best as uh, we could lay them out. And uh, since I was the junior member of the crew, fell naturally since Neil symbolically came down the ladder and first one to symbolically for the media and the people be the first one to uh, to walk on the moon. He became the leader of the experiments outside. Now, 
that was not the way it should have been, I don't believe, because of the training workload that the commander had, and that was one of the reasons why all the previous spacewalks was always done by the junior member of the crew. Okay, this is different because two guys were on the moon and a very symbolic activity needs to be decided who's going to be first and then what the hell he's going to say. That became an obsession almost of the media. Mm -hmm. So not much thought was given to the important things. Why were we there on the surface? And who's going to lead that? Okay, we knew what the procedures were, but it fell into the same commander's a commander. So he was doing things, leading things. I took a picture of a boot print. That was one of my contributions. But he was a very good photographer and took a very good photograph of me. Mm -hmm. And he accomplished many of the collection activities while I was putting up a Swiss experiment to catch uh, particles that were coming from the sun and a very complex seismometer that could detect volcanic activities in the moon. It was so sensitive that later when we uh, disposed of the heavy backpacks to lighten the weight, why we threw them out the hatch door, and when they hit the ground, the people back in uh, Houston could detect that Something just hit the moon. And uh, so it was pretty sensitive. That was a complex experiment. I have to ask Uh, you about another experiment you did. I I guess it's an experiment. One thing you mentioned is that you may have been number two on the moon, but you were the first person to go number one on the moon. You actually did go to the bathroom on the moon. Now, was that an experiment to see what would happen, or did you just have to go to the bathroom? Well, I had looked out the window and seen how easy it was for Neil to— move around and collect a contingency sample. And then uh, I sent the camera down. It would have been clumsy to carry the camera for him to carry it going down the ladder. So we had a very, very sophisticated pulley and clothesline (laughs) to send the camera down and the rock boxes back up again at the end of the flight. So I I could see him moving around. So it, it was no concern of mine. When I got down and eventually jumped up to the bottom rung of the ladder after missing the first time, but then to acclimate myself, there wasn't any need to do that because it was quite obvious that it was easy to move around on the surface. So looking around and noting things, there was the opportunity to exercise the device called a UCD, that's a urine collection device, and for people later on who are going to be out there for five, six hours, I think that we needed to test it early in the uh, spacewalk. Absolutely. And so, now you can call that what you want, yeah, uh, no, whether think, it was an urge or... A, it was a research. Uh, research. I call it research. Hey, Buzz Aldrin, I don't think anybody could have had as much fun afterwards as you seem to have had. You really seem to have enjoyed your life post-moon and all the opportunities that came along. You've obviously also got a great sense of humor. Transformers, The Simpsons, The Ali G Show, Dancing with the Stars. Buzz Aldrin, you've been having a lot of fun. Well, I I don't mind being second to uh, Simpsons and (laughs) second to Ali G, but there were a few other things. You know, when I 
chose to not stay with NASA, but to return to the service after uh, NASA. I uh, was going to go back to the Air Force. I'd been for two years at the Air Force Academy, and that seemed like a very logical way to uh, get back into the Air Force. That isn't what happened. I was sent to command the test pilot school, the Mm. school that I had chosen not to become familiar with. But now my first assignment after 11 years was to command this school. Well, I'm a role model, yes, and I did get along well with the students, better than the illustrious historical Chuck Yeager did. Mm -hmm. I was more friendly with the students by testimony of uh, students and instructors. But I didn't feel that that was preparing me for what I really wanted to do. So it discouraged me a good bit, but it didn't affect the leadership that I had at that time. But when I retired and tried to figure out what i do next, an inherited tendency for depression that caused my grandfather to commit suicide and my mother to commit to do that a year before I went to the moon. So with that history, I was kind of stewing around, wondering what I'm going to do next without a very disciplined life. And I think as happens to many people like that, whether you would call it a PTSD or anything like that, why I began to rely on the soothing influence of alcohol. And that began to dominate my life for a, a good bit was advised and was helped in a initially slow recovery from alcoholism. I now have 37 years of sobriety, but you can't touch a mental condition that needs adjusting when it's being poisoned by an addiction of some sorts, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or whatever. You have to uh, have a clean mind to be able to discover with professional help of sorts lifestyles that maybe need need changing. Well, I've been doing that now for a good number of years, quite successfully, I think. Yes, I did do things that appeared in the public. They were fun. Hmm. I did not have a nine-to-five job that was particularly consuming my time. And uh, when asked to be a part of Dancing with the Stars, mm-hmm. that was a telephone call, and I was in the uh, the White House executive office at the time I got that phone call. I shouldn't have picked up the phone, but I did anyway. So I uh, said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> then I found uh, one of the greatest uh, physical demanding rehearsal preparation for a very exciting company of some very attractive ladies. Buzz Aldrin, people forget that uh, before you were an Apollo astronaut, you were a Gemini astronaut. You, among other things, can lay claim to having taken the first ever space selfie. Tell us about your space selfie. Well, I had helped develop the rendezvous techniques, and I proceeded to assist others in training the early astronauts that did the rendezvous. And I made it clear that uh, to the higher people that I would certainly appreciate being on a Gemini mission to participate in our rendezvous activities. And uh, the response was uh, nodding, yes, we hear you. 
And when the assignments came out, I was on the backup crew with Jim Lovell to Gemini 10. And uh, when 10 flies, then you have a crew for 11 and 12. So the backup crew for 10 flies primary on 13. But there wasn't any 13. So I was going to be on the backup crew but never fly in the Gemini program. And that was very disappointing. It did not prompt a big complaint. I've learned that there are times when you do need to complain and you do need to assert yourself. But uh, a tragedy intervened. My backdoor neighbor, a very, very talented Air Force officer, Charlie Bassett, as the number two or the pilot of the prime crew for Gemini 9, So the backup crew took over, and now they needed a backup crew. So Jim Lovell and I were now back up to Gemini 9. And when it flew, they had a crew for 10 and 11. So we were assigned as anticipated to uh, Gemini 12, the last flight, and the second opportunity to... Okay, that particular answer went on for five and a half minutes, and it never really did get to the question of the first space selfie. We'll take a break. Buzz Aldrin will still be talking somewhere in the universe and come back with our interview with astronaut Scott Kelly from 2017. Just remember seeing George Clooney in the movie Gravity flying around, a little carefree about uh, where and what he was doing, but... uh, Anyway, that had a great anticipation for me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. The astronaut Scott Kelly was on November 1st, 2017 more than six years ago. It was the last time an astronaut was on the show until today. The show was about the International Space Station. Kelly was on the ISS for 11 months, which was the longest space flight ever taken by an American at that time. And he just didn't seem really interested in talking to me the way that it felt. I actually, you might even hear the sound. The sound of a TV on in the background in Scott Kelly's hotel room, which I was convinced he was watching rather than listening to me ask questions. McPants has edited a 31-minute interview down to 16 minutes. There might have been 16 minutes that were really good in that interview. And like the one with Buzz Aldrin before it, we will include talk about urinating in space. So... Captain Scott Kelly is an engineer and a retired astronaut and aviator in the United States Navy. 
His new book in 2017 was Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. His most recent book is Ready for Launch, An Astronaut's Lessons for Success on Earth. I started by asking him to give us a sense of the size of the International Space Station. It's big. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you landed it on Earth, which you couldn't do, but if you did, it would fit very nicely inside a uh, football stadium, cover the field. Now, most of that's the solar rays. It's not the mm -hmm. pressurized volume, but it does have a pretty large internal volume, about 13 different modules that together gives you, you know, something like a really large house, weighs a million pounds. Pretty big. It's like a, a a large house, except that it's also very cramped in other ways, right? I mean, you describe what it's like if you're exercising and somebody needs to walk past you, right? That's really hard. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff inside. Clearly, you, know, you need a lot of stuff in space. You can't go out to the store if you forgot something or <laughs> you run out of something. So we have a lot of stuff on board. But it's big enough. You know, I never felt like I was climbing the walls and never felt like I wish I had another room, for instance. Right. It's big enough so that things get lost permanently, right? At one point, you're unpacking stuff, and you say, if if you, this stuff gets put in not in the exact right box inside a box inside a module, we'll never see it again. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we've lost stuff for good. You know, maybe we'll find it someday. I think the longest period of time we've ever gone from losing something to finding it later is eight years. One of the things your book does so well is kind of give us a sense of, you know, I don't know, some of the just physical realities of living in space, living in an essentially weightless environment, as we would call it here here on Earth. Maybe you can share a few of these things to us. Let's start with eating. I mean, on the one hand, this book does have a bunch of meals in it, and you, you find out that the Russians bring up certain stuff, and you guys bring up certain stuff, and the Western Europeans, according to you, always have the best food. I mean, what kinds of things do you eat in space, and what's it like eating in space? Well, most of it's space food, obviously. And space food is either stuff that's dehydrated, mm. so it doesn't have any water in it, and you add the water later. More efficient to do that than launching water in the food. Mm -hmm. And there's other types of food that's irradiated, where on the ground it's hit with radiation to kill any bacteria, so it's, it's called thermostabilized, but it's hit with radiation to do that. That food's kind of like MREs that the military has. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff that's just off the shelf, like we'll have cans of like tuna, for instance. So not you know, tuna kind of smells if you don't take out the garbage for months, but, uh, <laughs> you know, cans of like chicken or something or just stuff you might be able to buy in a uh, grocery store that is not going to require any refrigeration. But the process of eating in space is like everything else in space because of microgravity, just about everything else. It's, you know, it's more challenging. You know, part of, I think, enjoying a meal is sitting down and relaxing. Mm -hmm. There's no sitting down and relaxing. You're floating, which is fun. It's sort of relaxing, but it's the same level of, you know, relaxation you have, whether you're, you know, typing on the computer or doing an experiment or sleeping. Right. You don't get to matter. stop floating. Yeah. Okay, so after you eat, something else has to happen, which is you have to ha you have to eliminate that food from your system. So tell us about going to the bathroom in space. Yeah, so, you know, everything floats, so <laughs> it's uh, a very delicate process, mm -hmm. but the toilet, you know, that we urinate into is has a vacuum, mm -hmm. so it's like you're peeing into a hose. Interestingly enough, though, that that the urine is... Uh, 
turned into water, mm. which we then drank. Right. We turn it into urine again. Right. Really. Right. Yeah. And it's just like process over and over again that is pretty efficient. Pretty incredible system, actually. Now the the other stuff. There's there's actually one scene where well, I think one of your Russian comrades is uh, walking past some cans of this other stuff that have to be gotten rid of somehow. Yeah. And, and he kind of thinks that the lids aren't on right or something like yeah. that, and he makes the problem infinitely worse. Tell us about that. Well, you know, when you use the restroom, there are two forms of waste. One of them is converted into water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other one goes into a can that has a name that I'm not going to use because it's... We appreciate I that. I don't know what your rules are, but I don't want the FCC to get mad at me. Yeah. Yeah, so we use these cans, and they're supposed to be sealed, and, you know, sometimes they don't get sealed perfectly, and, you know, you liberate the lid on one of these cans that's been squirreled away for a while and is getting ready to come home, and I almost fell off the treadmill <laughs> that happened. And I was in the, I was in the adjacent module. Mm. But, I mean, one of the things you talk about is just the problem with trash, right? You've got trash up there, and it's not like you can just throw a window open and toss it out into space, right? And so w- what happens with trash? Yeah, we collect it, in some cases, for months. We try to pack it as tightly as we can. We try to separate the smelly stuff from the not-as-smelly stuff and keep that, you know, wrapped up in bags as tightly as we can to keep the smell in. And then at some point you'll have a vehicle that's leaving the space station, generally to burn up in the atmosphere, although we have uh, a SpaceX that can land under a parachute. And we put trash in all of them. (laughs) Um, Preferred to put it in the ones that burn up because it's better to send stuff you really want to get back to Earth in the SpaceX, but sometimes we put garbage in there because we don't have enough other stuff that we need to return right away. And then, uh, you know, the vehicle undocks and burns up in the atmosphere. So sometimes when you wish upon a shooting star, (laughs) might be one of those cans I was talking about earlier. All right. So, you know, it's the International Space Station, and that means what it says. It's truly international. And in a way, you know, it it fulfills maybe some of the more latent hopes and ideas about it in the sense that it's a bunch of people from other countries who really have to get along. If you don't get along up there, that's an enormous problem. There actually, I think, are 1.2 Russians on one of your trips there who, who aren't getting along, and that's unusual. But the picture of the Russians that emerges is at times heartwarming and at times kind of funny. I mean, at one point you sort of described going over to the Russian side of this. And it's like going to a different neighborhood where like things aren't maybe quite as nice. Things are kind of built. I mean, there's that the old line from the right stuff about, you know, you're sitting on top of X million parts, each one of them built by the, the lowest bidder. But I mean, on the Russian side, it sounds like that's carried to an extreme. There's just things that are kind of built pretty cheaply. Well, you know, in some ways, you know, I think I think they're very good at doing more with less. You know, their budget isn't as big and you know, I think that's a reflection of their their society in general. They are forced into very practical solutions based on their economy. Mm-hmm. And that presents itself sometimes in, in humorous ways, at least humorous to a guy that works at NASA that is a much larger organization with more money and kind of a different philosophy in how we do things sometimes. So... When you're sealing your spacesuit mm-hmm. 
with the same rubber band you use to seal the garbage the garbage <laughs> bags. Same exact rubber band. Yeah. The uh, irony of that is not it's not lost on me at least. Well, there, there's a scene where uh, you walk over to their side and they're using a centrifuge. I think this is because you guys are having to draw your own blood all the time. Uh-huh. And, and and you say the centrifuge is first of all making this god awful noise that's actually really kind of disconcerting. Uh-huh. And, and I think you say to them that thing looks like it's just about to blow any second, which is both funny and not a joke at all. Right? It'll kill you all. Yeah, if it blows. yeah it's like a chainsaw. <laughs> The size of a shoebox, <laughs> but 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 there's also there's also a way in which their attitude is infectious a little bit and helpful. Uh, we should talk about one of the really kind of. I mean, we're talking about just sort of quotidian things like where the, where does the poop go when you're done with it. But there's some pretty iffy moments here in in your stories from being on the space station. And there's one where a piece of space junk is coming towards you. You've been notified about it kind of at the last minute. Nobody quite understood its trajectory or the fact that it, it really could come close to you and maybe hit you. It's moving at this terrifying uh-huh. speed. And, and so this plan is invoked where you guys are going to go into one, everybody's going to go into one kind of module and desert these other modules, although it doesn't seem how that's going to be particularly helpful, right? If these things are moving 35,000 miles per hour towards each other, it's not like one pod is going to survive better than the others. I'll let you finish the story and talk about what NASA told you to do as opposed to how the Russians handled this question. Yeah, you know, you you probably wouldn't, but you know, I think sometimes you do things like get into the Soyuz and this lifeboat more because you have to do something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. It gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, gives you a little bit of a peace of mind that we're doing something. But on the U.S. side, they have us close all the hatches that, you know, separate all these modules with the thinking if we get hit. You know, if we get if we get hit by the space junk, if one if the module has its hatches closed, you might survive. I think the Russians look at it a little bit differently. Sometimes they're a little bit more, you know, practical thinking. Although how we handle this is somewhat framed by the fact that the space shuttle program had two fatal accidents, mm-hmm. kind of an accident that was more about recognizing a failure we thought was very unlikely mm-hmm. but very risky right kind of puts us in the same kind of category which makes us want to do something rather than nothing and yeah. we can protect for it so that's what we do right so ju- just to make clear what you're talking about too i mean about in terms of the hatches and stuff i mean closing the hatches is not a simple process it's a process that takes hours and ultimately the russian space station inhabitants they they just looked at that whole thing and they they said to paraphrase you screw it we're just going to have a lunch in case this is yeah. the last lunch we ever have yeah I mean, they, they, it's not like the space station, it's not like the cosmonauts went rogue or anything against their wishes of their, right. but that's just their procedure is to not close their hatches. It's kind of harder to close their hatches, too, so I'll give them that. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about space. One thing you say about space, and I, I'm not sure that I understood it at first or, or believed that you meant it, but you describe space as having a smell. Uh, talk about yeah. that smell. Well, you know, it's whenever you have someone go on a spacewalk and that volume of now air, like when you come back inside, you fill the airlock with air before you can open the hatch. Right. Otherwise, you'd be hoping the hatch to vacuum. Or, you know, between two spacecrafts that have just docked, there was a volume of space in there that was then filled with air. That space always has a very distinct smell and 
some people say it's atomic oxygen. Others, you know, it's off-gassing of the material in a vacuum or material like the structure of the space station that was exposed to the rays of the sun. I mean, I need to do a little bit more research, but it is an unmistakable smell. Anyone who has smelled it will never forget it. And it's kind of like, to me, the smell of, like, if metal, like, burning metal, Mm -hmm. maybe like welding, a welding smell, or the smell of, like, a sparkler on the 4th of July. Mm. Yeah, that is not, I mean, until I read your book, I had never given any thought to that. And if I I thought I'm going to try to recreate it somehow and <laughs> make a cologne there you go i don't space. i don't think it'll be popular if it's the way that you describe the smell yeah. <laughs> it's actually not a bad smell but it's definitely a, it's, it wouldn't make a good cologne probably we should since we're talking about space we should talk about space walks which you've done first of all we a couple of things about space walks one of them is that i think they we don't get this watching i don't know movies uh, about this it's it it hurts, right? It's hard on your hands, hard on your body. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty grueling, actually. And there's not any walking involved, mm-hmm. so I don't know why they call it that. <laughs> so, be called, it should be called space working. <laughs> your joints hurt, you know. Your shoulders, your elbows, getting into it, you know. You kind of have to be sort of like Houdini a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's pressure points in certain parts of the suit. On uh, one of these spacewalks, I had something digging into my back, and when I got back, Chell Lindgren, one of my crewmates I was out there with, he's also a doctor, he had to lance this big blister on my back. You know, some people lose their fingernails Mm -hmm. from the pressure on the tips of their fingers and the gloves, and sometimes those fingernails don't grow back. We've had guys that have had, you know, have some really bad nails as a result. Another of the book's somewhat terrifying passages, I mean, it's not that terrifying because I'm reading your book, so I know you made it, but Uh you're on a space walk or a space work, if we're going to call it that, and there's something called an LAOC, a loss of attitude control. Quickly, just give us a sense. What what happened on this occasion? Well, we almost had a loss of attitude control because the U.S. side of the space station uses these giant gyroscopes to uh, control our attitude and using, you know, just momentum of the the spinning wheel. But when you're on a spacewalk, like on this spacewalk in particular, we were venting ammonia overboard Mm -hmm. into space, which caused a uh, moment on the gyroscopes that they had to use all their momentum to counter it. And once they run out of momentum, you either lose control or you have to turn on the Russian thrusters. To what's called, and this is all kind of complicated, to desaturate the control moment gyros that they're called. And in this case, what I was talking about was how we almost lost attitude control and how it made me think, you know, if we did that, we would lose calm. If we lose calm, you know, Chell and I on the outside on this uh, second spacewalk, you know, we're the only two people in the universe that can help one another. And it just kind of hit home that fact when I was out there thinking, you know, we have all these smart people on the ground, but they really can't help you if, uh, you know, because they're not there with you Mm. and give you advice. Right. So you survived this somehow, though. Clearly. Clearly, yes. So, Scott Kelly, first of all, thank you so much for talking to me. 
Oh, thank you for having me on your show. That's Scott Kelly in 2017. We're going to take a break and come back with a brand new interview with a real live astronaut because the astronaut ban has been temporarily suspended. We're back. The technical producer of today's show is Kat Pastor, and the producer of this episode is Jonathan McPants. However, there are actually a whole bunch of other people involved in this because we're pulling from past footage as well. So, yes, it's Kat Pastor, Kion Wolf, Betsy Kaplan as engineers. We had interns who worked on these shows in 2016 and 2017. Esther Shitu, Adriana Smith, Evan Sobel, Ashley Taylor. Also, uh, other producers, including Josh Nalea, worked on this show as well. So, you know, earlier this week, we had Neil deGrasse Tyson on, and I crowned him mayor of outer space. But if there were a possible primary, you know, if there were a future election, a very strong candidate for mayor of outer space might be our guest right now. Colonel Chris Hadfield is an engineer, musician, and retired astronaut and fighter pilot in the Canadian Air Command. He's the author of several books. His newest, which we'll be talking about, The Defector, is his second novel. It's a sequel to his first to a certain degree. He spent 160—if I list everything about Chris Hadfield, the this, this segment will be over. But he spent 164 days in space. He's been to space three times. He's been a commander of the International Space Station at one point. I'm going to stop there. Chris Hadfield, welcome to our show. Colin, I'm, I'm pleased to be talking with you. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. So I think in talking about the book, we can sort of talk about two things that are, I think, even relevant to some of the larger themes that we've been exploring on the show this week. So we should begin by saying this book takes place during the Cold War. It takes place kind of with the Yom Kippur War flaring into life. It's about a, a Soviet MiG fighter plane that uh, whose pilot defects along with it. So there's two things I'd like to talk about a little bit here specific to the novel. And one of them is about the Cold War itself. To do that, you to write about that, you had to shift yourself into a mindset that's somewhat different from the one that you were in, I don't know, just a few years ago. Just a few years ago, I think to probably to get to and from the International Space Station, you probably had to fly Soyuz, right? You had to fly a Russian craft of some kind. Yeah, I was the I flew in space three times. I've flown three rocket ships. So as part of the crew that flew a space shuttle twice mm -hmm. with Atlantis and then Endeavor. And then I was the pilot of a Russian rocket ship and a Russian spaceship called a Soyuz. And in fact, I was NASA's director of operations in Russia. I lived lived in Russia for about five years at a little town called Star City and uh, and learned to speak the language. So, yeah, I have uh, more than a passing familiarity with Russia, which really helps when you're writing thriller fiction where a lot of it takes place in Russia. But it's also interesting because you, a lot of the most flourishing parts of your career took place at a time, I mean, obviously we're on a very different footing right now. But prior to that, I assume you got along, I, mean, I think you flew back with a Russian cosmonaut from the ISS. I assume there was, you know, glasnost or whatever else we might want to call a general atmosphere of friendliness on the ISS. Yeah, well, uh, prior to becoming an astronaut, I was a combat fighter pilot in the Cold War, intercepting Soviet bombers off the coast of North America, protecting North America from Soviet attack. And they were flying big Tu-95 bear bombers. And you didn't know if they were just on their way to Cuba or if they were just probing our defenses 
or if if they were the model of the bear that carried uh, the cruise missiles and just getting to the release line. So I have a deep background in Cold War combat, but I also helped build the Russian space station Mir on my first space flight. I, I actually used the space shuttle and the big Canadian robot arm to build the, the Russian space station, the predecessor to the International Space Station. And I was the pilot of a Russian spaceship, you know, a Russian rocket ship. So yeah, I, I think I've seen both sides. And what I come away from is that people behave true to their culture and their beliefs and what is important to them. And there's huge variety within every country, within the United States, within Russia. There are people of all different levels of profound belief. And the characters that you deal with and the characters that you write about in a book like The Defector, they just need to be true. And they're going to be true to their own beliefs. Yeah, as you say all that, I'm, I did a lot of Chris Hadfield reading to get ready for this. And now I don't remember where I read it or ex the exact boundaries of the story. But there was a story about you on one of these intercepts with the Russian plane, where the Russian pilot eventually wished you Merry Christmas as you were sort of peeling away from that. Can you tell that story? Yeah, the way it works is the Russians would launch out of uh, right up the northwest corner of Russia, and they'd sort of arc around the north of Iceland, come down in between Iceland and Greenland. And then the long, long range radars would detect them. And so I'd be sound asleep in our quick reaction facility, the horn would go off on the wall. And we had to be airborne in 12 minutes from sound asleep in your, you know, in your underwear to now dressed in your flight suit, your G suit with your boots laced up and uh, helmet on and blasting out to go intercept them over the Atlantic. And I did that eight different times. So you go racing out and one of those was on uh, the 23rd as it became the 24th of December. So essentially Christmas Eve. And I, it was with one other F-18 pilot. So two F-18s racing out in the middle of the night, out over the, the incredible cold blackness of the North Atlantic. And um, we did our job properly, arced around. You pull up beside these great big bombers and they're, they have propellers. Even though they're up at you know, 30, mm -hmm. 32,000 feet, they have eight big counter-rotating propellers. So they make a racket. You know, even me sitting inside my jet with my canopy and my helmet and my you know inner ear covering, it was still loud. <laughs> this, this, I can't imagine for their crew, must have been deafening. Well, we did our job, came up, shone our huge light on them, recognized what type of airplanes they were, guaranteed that they weren't on of hostile intent on that night, but not talking to them. I was just talking to NORAD, you know, the people back deep underground in Colorado or in North Bay, and not even sure what frequency the Russians were on. But as we pulled away, as, as we, you know, had done everything we needed to do and pulled off to the right to leave them on their way down south, over our frequency came Merry Christmas <laughs> in a very thick Russian accent. And and I didn't say anything back, but uh, it was one of those things you go, did I really just hear that? Or did I imagine that here at three o'clock in the morning? But yeah, they've been listening to everything we said and knew enough English to be able to say, uh, you know, Merry Christmas. And that also brought home the fact that, yeah, these are the enemy in wartime, but it's still just some other people. And they've got their own motivations. And it was kind of a nice touch of humanity amongst all the machinery that was going on there. 
So, Chris Hadfield, I, w- I want to ask you another question connected to your uh, new novel, The Defector, which is that at a certain point in the book, they've got this Soviet MiG fighter plane in U.S. custody, and so they take it. I didn't realize that this was standard operating procedure, but it probably is. They take it to Area 51, which I guess is kind of one of the things Area 51 is really for, as opposed to maybe what we would have seen in Independence Day. Can you say a little bit about that in the book and in real life? Yeah, I'm not sure I I treat Independence Day as my fact source. Oh, come um, on now. (laughs) The huge nuclear weapons test range in Nevada, just north of Las Vegas. If you go to Las Vegas, there's a great museum there that shows what's been going on since the 50s. But Right on the on the sort of the upper right hand edge of it, on the northeastern side of the nuclear test range, is a little set of area that the CIA got the government to grant them back in the mid fifties, and that's where they developed secret airplanes. It's where they developed the U two, you know, the the super high altitude reconnaissance airplane. And then they realized the U two was too slow when one of them got shot down over Russia in the early sixties. So that's where they developed the super high-speed reconnaissance airplane, which became the SR-71. They started as the A-12. So something that could go you know, many times the speed of sound. That was developed at Area 51. But it's on a big dry lake bed called Groom Lake. And people there, they call it Dreamland or the ranch. And, and so that's a real place, Dreamland, the ranch, Area 51, Groom Lake. But what a lot of people don't know is whenever the United States either confiscated or bought, you know, from a country that had multiple allegiances, or because of a defection, ended up with a Soviet airplane, what would they do with it? Well, what they want to do is is sort of take it apart, put it back together, and then fly it a bunch and learn everything there is to know about that airplane and their systems. And so flying out in Nevada, just up from Las Vegas, are MiG-17s, MiG-21, MiG-23. And for the purposes of my book, a MiG-25, the highest, fastest fighter plane ever built. This is all just so fascinating, though, the the idea that they would do that, that they would kind of do an autopsy, basically, pull the plate apart in Area 51 and try to figure out how it works. Something I would not have guessed. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that you've been doing lately. As I said, you know, I've anointed Neil deGrasse Tyson as mayor of outer space. But, you know, I mean, he hasn't met with King Charles about the Astra Carta. Explain all this. This is pretty fascinating. Yeah. So if you had just flown in space, Colin, for half a year, and so you've been weightless, and you come thundering down through the atmosphere, and you're getting crushed in your seat as you're flying the little capsule back, and uh, finally the big parachute opens, and it comes down, and then you just whack into the ground, and the vehicle rolls end over end a few times because of the wind out on the prairies of Kazakhstan there, and then you open up the hatch, and you climb out all sort of wobbly on your feet. I mean, what do you do then? (laughs) What do you do with that experience? And you've learned so much to get in a position to command, to command a spaceship. You know, I commanded the world space station. And, and so all of those experiences, if you just kept them to yourself, to me, it would sort of seem like a waste. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a thing to share to help other people maybe make different decisions with their lives. And and so that's what I thought would be worth doing. And, and it's why I've written several books. But I also work on lunar policy with the Open Lunar Foundation. I work with a lot of space companies, either advising Virgin Galactic or SpaceX or being on the board of companies. But I also got approached by King Charles for a 
a sustainability project that he's been working on since before he was crowned king. And he calls it the Sustainable Markets Initiative. And his idea is pretty simple. As our population levels off here at about 9 or 10 billion people, and we try and figure out what's the new normal is going to be to make that sustainable, what should the common ethos be? What should businesses be doing? What should normal look like? And he was working on it for terrestrial-based businesses. And he called that the Terra Carta. But then he realized that with what SpaceX is doing in other countries, there is tremendous move of business and decision-making towards space. And we should try and write some sort of governing document there. And so I've been working with King Charles and his team for almost two years now on a document called the Astra Carta. So like the Magna Carta, which was the rights of man and and the uh, Carta Foresta, which was the original environmental rights. This is basically what should normal business and human behaviors be as we start to settle on the moon and beyond. And it's a really worthwhile project. And the king doesn't have a lot of authority, but he has tremendous convening power. And a lot of people will come and talk who might otherwise not be able to talk to each other. And so I see that as a real strength. And it's been fun to getting to know the king as well and working with his team. And in fact, at uh, COP28, the king is, is there to help kick off COP28, but also to announce the first public draft of the Astra Carta and uh, how common human behaviors hopefully will look for the next 100 years as we start to settle beyond Earth. Yeah, so some of the questions that would come up yeah, are things like, how do we handle the natural resources that are present on, on other planets? Who owns what? Who can drill and who can take advantage of other kinds of resources? And for that reason, it surprises me to hear that you don't like the streaming series For All Mankind, which is about astronauts. It's sort of an alternative history of astronauts. But they deal with all that stuff as soon as they get to the moon, as soon as they get to Mars. There's an awful lot of jostling and jockeying among different nations and at least one private company about those questions of who gets what. So I have to ask you, because I really like For All Mankind, how come you don't like it? Well, because the characters became unbelievable by about episode five, they started turning into one or maybe two dimensional cartoons Mm -hmm. of how real people behave. And sure, you can address complex issues. And that's what really intrigued me about the series when I started watching it. Mm -hmm. But it's as if they changed writers or directors after a while, and suddenly they dropped into the standard memes and stereotypes and lack of just realistic human behaviors that are true for astronauts. And you don't show up on the moon as a buffoon and as a as someone who has no training beyond boot camp or something. I, when I watch the screen, I start going, why are they saying that? No one would say that. Why are they behaving that way? That's not how anybody in the astronaut program behaves. That's not how anybody at SpaceX behaves. Who wrote this? And so it's not the ideas that I don't find important, but it's just the portrayal of them that I found disappointing. Well, because you are who you are, and also because you're Canadian, Canadians are relentlessly positive. I should have you talk about something that you do like instead of having you talk about something you don't like. So you take your pick. It could be Top Gun Maverick. It could be The Expanse. Talk about a thing that brought you pleasure. I think the most pleasurable thing I know, Colin, is to imagine something and then make it come true. Mm-hmm. And I decided to be an astronaut when I watched Neil, Buzz, and Mike go there when I was nine years old. And when Neil and Buzz walked on the surface, I thought, 
you know, what used to be cartoons and pretend and Star Trek and comic books and fantasy, this is a now a thing that people can actually do. Those are just real people. And if they can do that, then perhaps I could do that. And so at nine years old, I, I decided if the fates possibly allow, I'm going to try and turn myself into somebody who can be trusted to do that. And that has that central core purpose has been a wonderful gift throughout my life because it's just helped me decide what to do next. And it continues to inspire me. You know, what do you do next? That's the only thing you really have control over. And so I, I speak all over the world and I, I did a master class and I teach at university and I write and do TV series. But a lot of it boils down to how is it that you're choosing what to do next with your life? And what are you finding pleasure with? And what are you proud of at the end of the year? Let me ask you one last question connected to what you just said and about the influence that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had on you as a kid. It seemed as though when you were in outer space that you were trying to pay that forward a little bit. And you do have another gift, which is just you make things things that might even seem kind of simple, very exciting and relatable. You open a, a container of mixed nuts in outer space, and it gets 5 million views on YouTube. And of course, then when you performed David Bowie's Space Oddity, I think that was 50 million views. And there are lots of different reasons to do something like that. But I assume one of the reasons is that there's the nine-year-old version of Chris Hadfield watching right now, maybe starting to dream a similar dream. You know, Colin, when, when I landed back on Earth after my third space flight, there were a bunch of people there, as usual, a bunch of hangers on, and then the safety people and the medical people and all of them, and that's fine. But the one person that I wish had been there was that nine-year-old version of myself, so that I could have told him what it was like, but also so that I could have thanked him, because it takes a lifetime of tenacity and overcoming disappointment and quiet, unrewarded work in order to eventually command a spaceship. And that little nine-year-old's inspiration and excitement that, that he just burned into who I am, that's what continues to inspire me now. And so I think I have a huge public trust as a an astronaut who belonged to a space agency or multiple space agencies to pay that forward, to return that to share the idea that maybe someone else could make a different decision with their life because of their knowledge of the things that I've done. And that's what inspires me to write and to, you know, make TV series as well is because if you can't, if you're not aware of something, then you can't make decisions to make that part of your own life. And so I think that's an important facet of, you know, you got to do the technical job properly. You've got to execute. You've got to take care of all the things that go wrong. But the inspiration of the next generation is probably the greatest measure of anyone. That's a perfect place to end. The astronaut is Chris Hadfield. The new book, a thriller, is called The Defector. Thank you so much for doing it. My dog, Declan, says hi to your dog, Henry. <laughs> Henry's snoring in the background. Thanks all a right. lot, Colin. Thank you. And that's all for today. We have one more day of Astronauty Week, so don't miss it. <laughs> 